right, this is episode 24 of Uncorrect New York. Uh, I'm Tom Rosati. I'm Stephen Witt. And not with us today, unfortunately, is Kelly Mena. And Steve, do you want to describe what's uh, what's going on? Yes, after three years uh, with us, Kelly has moved on to the Brooklyn Eagle, uh, the, the Dumbo-based um, general news publication, very old publication. Yeah, we, um, she starts her new job, what, next week? She starts her job on Monday. Yeah, it's very uh, exciting for her. Um, unfortunately, we're left here without her, uh, but we're going to forge ahead and talk about the week's events. And also, we have a very special session today. We are going to interview none other than Steve Witt himself, um, mainly because it's my first time doing the software audio, so we didn't want to invite a guest and then record the show and then not have it uh, recorded or have me do some sort of technical screw-up. Some so, glitch. Yeah, yeah, right. So we're going back the way, you know, we started in the basement of your house, and now we're, we're back to... The studio and getting together. Yeah. That so, great. yeah, uh, I, I think this is recording, so that's a good start. All right. <laughs> Um, but why don't we start with the week that was a lot of things going on, elections and whatnot. Steve, do you want to fill us in? Sure. The, I mean, the big citywide election was uh, the, the election of Tiffany Caban as the new district attorney. Another progressive wave uh, just kind of went through Queens. And <laughs> now, you know, a lot of people are saying that that's it, that, you know, that the progressive taken over and the downfalls imminent it's a relentless march wait downfall what, what do you mean downfall the downfall of the entrenched democrats the democratic machine the entrenched democrats okay it, it could be called the democratic machine it could also be called the instead of uh, the progressives they could be called the socialist Dem- democratic socialist america dsa that's true and i know you know I'm sure you're pretty excited about the decriminalization of all sex work. You know, I'm sure that's something you look forward to. Right. It's interesting because uh, Kelly and I had interviewed Frank Setio after the the other race was the 45th. In, right. And uh, he was at the victory party where um, Farrah Lewis won the city council seat that was vacated by Jemani Williams. And he was saying, you know, the president has to be 35 and he almost feels there should be age limits on a DA, too, because their, their purpose is to kind of prosecute bad people and not make them feel good. And, and you know, like like uh, Tiffany Caban is calling for no jail, not even to rebuild a jail. What do you mean no jail? She wants Rikers closed and she doesn't feel a jail should be built. She she wants uh, cashless bail for all criminals. Right. And, you know, that can be a little bit problematic. I mean, there are, you know, it. I, but she won, and let, let's see how she rolls it out. She's a young lady, and uh, I guess the, the proof of the pudding is how she prosecutes serious crime. I mean, she, she's not going to prosecute fair beating. She's not going to prosecute um, welfare fraud. She's not going to prosecute a whole host of jobs. I got, I got to look at it here. It's jo- crimes. Right. Or jobs for some people. Right. You know, but—, but you know, that could, you know, it's it's a grand experiment that if it works, will be great. And if it doesn't, can really hurt the quality of life that we're enjoying right now. 
Well, yeah, I mean, here's here's my take. Like, if you talk, I mean, all those policies that you talk about, I, I think most of the DAs in that, or most of the, the potential DAs were talking about that. I mean, Eric Gonzalez was on here last week talking about very similar reforms. Maybe they're not exact. Maybe Tiffany Kaman is a little bit to the left in terms of specific policy, in terms of, you know, like what you would do in a, you know, sex crimes court or a, you know, or what you would do by replacing Rikers. I, I think the main problem here is her experience and that she doesn't have any. And you look at Rory Lankman, who was also, you know, very liberal in criminal justice reform, who was running the race and dropped out about, what, three days before the race? Correct. He, instead of endorsing her, which would have made a lot of sense in terms of the similarities in their policy, he decided to endorse Melinda Katz, who, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, has a similar campaign, not as, not as, you know, not as completely progressive as those two. But there's only one reason why he would do that. Which is? That she has no experience. Well, there's another reason, too. What? He wants to be the next borough president, and Melinda Katz comes from Greg Meeks. And right. It's, you know, there's always, um, in politics, there's always a chance that there was a, a deal cut somewhere. Yeah, that's true. But, I mean, if you, I, you know, he I, seems I, like the type of guy who has, you know, he, he's a very principled guy. So if you actually thought that Melinda Katz was not going to enact the reforms as DA that he wanted as a criminal justice reformer, he probably wouldn't have endorsed her. And he said that she was the only person to reach out to all, you know, neighborhoods and Queens That's true. and whatnot. That's true. But what you're talking about, I mean, this is a technocratic position. It's not, uh, you know, AOC getting elected to a congressional seat for, you know, whatever its responsibilities are. It's basically you and your staff and you're participating in a much larger body. I mean, this is someone who's running an organization with 600 people underneath them and they've never had any sort of managerial experience. So... If you look at what Eric Gonzalez and Ken Thompson were doing before, I mean, they were slowly and surely you know, taking these reforms in a very steadfast manner. And it's really hard, right? Right. Like, I mean, you've got a lot of pressures against you. And what Eric Gonzalez said was um, he feels like he's in the right place when the people on the left are pushing at him and the people on the right are pushing at them, meaning that he's getting resistance from both sides. He knows he's sort of on this straight course. Correct. I, I think that uh, that that sounds right, Tom. So I, mm-hmm. I don't I don't see that happening. I mean, I, this could be a real debacle. Well, we'll have to see. Let's give her a chance, you know, and and see see where it goes. I mean, she won, and uh, you just gotta hope. <coughs> excuse me. Whoever wins grows into the job. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you can't. You know, the the winners, you know, you have to believe in the system and the process and hope that everything works for the best. Yeah, you know, I wonder, you know, like uh, she's not going to, she declined to prosecute fair elect, she's declining to prosecute fair evasion, low-level marijuana possession, trespassing, disorderly conduct, loitering, drug possession, and welfare fraud. And I think some of that's fair, but I wonder if you're hanging out like, I mean, you, you don't want to arrest people, but you also have to have a quality of life, you know. But this is where the debacle is, is going to happen because the police department are going to arrest. They're going to arrest people for trespassing. They're arre- they're going to arrest people for these low level offenses, and then what's going to happen? I mean, there's going to be like if you real and when I guess when you say prosecute, what does that mean? Does it mean send to Rikers or does it mean you know what Gonzalez said, take them out of the system? 
say, hey, you did something stupid. You know, we're going to send you to a juvenile court. We're going to put you in this program instead of giving you a record and putting you, and locking you up for some indeterminate amount of sh- you know short time that's really going to do nothing except possibly make you a, 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 a career criminal. That I agree with. It's just, you know, these are all the details that really need to be hammered out. You know, I think it is in it is slightly um, related to it. There's been four NYPD suicides in the last, like, two weeks. Really? Three weeks, yeah. People put a gun, as, as they say, they ate their guns. And, it, you know, it's a little bit discerning because, like, in the 35th, there was a big argument because uh, Monique Chandler-Waterman was very upset that Farrah— um, Lewis would, would take the PBA endorsement. And I used to cover the 6-7. 6-7 back in the day, I, I, I guess it's a lot better. They, they used to lead the city in taking guns off the streets. Right. They, you know, they, they used to be a pretty high murder crime rate. And now there's this anti, I mean, a little bit of an anti-police sentiment. And there's been four suicides. I mean, it would be nice to hear a DA or the mayor, you know, like really like that's kind of a crisis. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't know that. I mean, I don't know I don't know how you could directly real I mean if you're saying that the you know, the crisis like basically that you know, police feel like they're not being they're being overlooked in a way and so therefore that manifests itself in mental health crises for its officers. I don't know. I don't know. I just think that it's tough if you have a DA saying we're not going to prosecute this. We're not going to prosecute that. And then you have housing police that are walking NYCHA in maybe, you know, one of the the more high-crime NYCHA developments. And right. you have some gang members loitering in front of the house, you know. It, it could be, and you're a cop, it, it could be a little bit stressful that, you, you, you know, you can't do anything. And if you do do anything, you might be hurt. It, it's, I'm not defending it. It's part of the job. But when you have all these criminal justice reforms in place, it might make policing a little harder. Absolutely. And I mean, if we look at other examples of clashes between politically elected officials and the police department, they don't go very well. I'm thinking of Baltimore after the Freddie Gray incident. Basically, and this is really, I think, was a despicable act by the police. But basically, they're like, all right, well, you know, we're going to, you know, now you're going to like hold us accountable. We're not going to enforce crime. And crime shot through the roof, and whereas all you know, in major cities, crime was going down in Baltimore, it started to spike right around right after that time, in a very intentional uh, and very destructive act by the police force. I think something more complicated is what's happening in Philadelphia with Larry Krasner, who is probably the what the first of these new breed of of you know criminal justice re- um, reform DAs. I mean, the guy has thirty years of experience you know, defending and being a, a public defender, running his own firm. And he gets in there and it's it's a mess. I mean, uh, oh, is it, crime's gone up? Or crime's what? gone up. The hom- homicides in, like, I think in 2017, there was like 310 homicides in Philly. And then 2018, 350. And now there's they're on track to beat that for this year. And he's got a Trump-appointed federal prosecutor in there on his ass. Because, the, you know, obviously, they, you know, the Department of Justice is not going for this um, because they're all Republicans now. So he's having to deal with a, the, the, you know, federal strike force that's, you know, that's a, 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 a conflicting relationship with them. 
He's got a police department that's dealing with, you know, high rate of murders. And then he's having to justify a lot of very justifiable reform, justifiable reforms, but reforms that really won't take effect for a generation. You know, you, you decide that's give, give a kid a break for having a gun or doing something stupid. He's not instantly going to become a model citizen. Right, right. <laughs> and in the midst of, an, of a crime uptick, then you have to debate back and forth. Like, well, what are we going to do? You know, we've got we've got so many conflicting ideas going on in this pool that I, I could be, you know, it has the recipe for a real, real disaster. You could have, you know, the police, uh, you know, bucking, the bucking uh, authority and not listening to the D.A. And I mean, hopefully that doesn't happen. Uh, but, you know, it's a real possibility. So we also had an election with Farrah Lewis. Right. And. uh that that was kind of a that was a real knockdown drag out race, but we do have a new city council member, Fair Lewis, and um, I wish her all the best. It was a hard fought election. It, you know, um, it, it there was some overtones of anti semitism. There was some overtones of uh, Caribbean uh, Haitian Caribbean overtones of some animosity. It was it was a tough election. I just hope that people can get unified now. What were those allegations coming from? Well, it's it's a mainly a a uh, Caribbean American district, but it's solidly twenty percent uh, Orthodox Jewish. Mm-hmm. So Farrah Lewis got the Orthodox Jewish endorsement. When she got the Orthodox Jewish endorsement, Monique Chandler Waterman kind of intimated these are Trump supporters, these are developers, and a lot of the Jewish people felt they took offense. They're like, hey, you know, we live in the community too, and we're Democrats, but we should be allowed to vote for Trump or whoever we do. He's a pro-Israel guy, and we like him for that. And whoever wins has to represent everybody. And that for you to like, you know, like all of a sudden we're developers and we're this and we're that, it's like, look, is developer a code word? Is like a yeah. anti-Semitic code word now? Well, I don't know. I mean, like globalist? some, some uh, Jewish people thought that. You right, know? right. And like, you know, one person wrote that the houses on the Jewish side of the district are more suburban looking. Right. Although there's houses through the whole district. It's a lot of single family houses. But the person wrote, you know, you guys say you're anti-development. The Jewish community's anti-development too, because if somebody comes in here and builds a six-story building, we're going to lose parking. You know, it's like our issues. You, you know, like you think we're pro-development in this district. We don't want pro-development either. You know that we're, you know that it's a little disingenuous to like single us out when our our issues. There's a lot of shared issues between us and the Caribbeans. Right. We live in the same district. Yeah. That's true. So, you know, I I don't know. You know, it's it's hard as a Jew because, you know, you, whether it's anti-Semitic, although I do think and uh, I, I do think that the progressive movement, it, I have some some problems with it. I think that there is some uh, anti-Semitism. Taked in anti-Semitism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I you know I don't I don't know how to unpack that, but you know. Right. I mean, well, it's it's not just you who's feeling that. Like it's a it's a major divide in the Democratic platform. Right. And that's where you know Ilhan Omar comes in with her you know her comments that are you know in some ways very legitimate in terms of being Muslim and representing 
Muslims, including Palestinians, I mean, from this sort of macro level. Um, and then you have Jews who are being targeted by the Trump administration. I mean, the, the Trump supporters, because Trump has raised this vitriol uh, so high that you're seeing a, a large level of anti-Semitic attacks and, and incidents, um, including, you know, the, the synagogue shootings, um, feeling extremely threatened by any sort of rhetoric that sort of what wishes to paint quote unquote Jews with a broad brush. And that's, you know, that's really, that's, it's very problematic right now. So you have to, as the Democrats, Democrats have to understand the difference between criticizing say Israeli policy from a very specific, you know, standpoint and then making generalizations of what, what Jews are and what they do and who, you know, like who they support and who they, you know, like that is really, that's a huge problem. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely, uh, going to be, an, you know, it was an issue in 2016, right? In right. The, when they wrote the democratic platform, I think they included some sort of, um, you know, critique of Israel, right? Like Cornell West and somebody, I can't remember who else did. And it's, you know, and uh, there's a huge Jewish, uh, presence in the democratic party too. And they respond to that usually pretty negatively. I mean, it's. It's a very complicated issue. Correct. Um, anyway. All right. So <laughs> that we don't want to discuss. Cause yes. It's, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's Friday. Yes, it's Friday. Yeah. It's Shabbos. It's, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, we got to walk home if we... Yeah. Um, all right. So anything else before we move on to the next segment? Uh, that, that's about it. You know, they, um, you know uh, legislation, state legislators done for the year. City council summer kind of gets slow in government yes. for the next month and a half, and that's a good segue into our next segment because we didn't book a guest, um, and the summer is a time for you know exploration, and so we thought today that we would explore the life of Steve Witt and how he ended up starting uh, Kings County politics. And I think it it might be looked at as a little bit self-indulgent to interview one of the co-hosts but i think steve's the type of guy who when you meet him uh you're left with more questions than answers and uh you know everyone knows him from the buffet tables all throughout every every brooklyn political event so um i think this is a good topic sure i love talking <laughs> about myself um depending on the, the day well um, you know it's interesting because from my you know having known you for 17 years you have a very particular brand of journalism which i have come to really respect and it has its roots and it has your own orange origin story so let's kind of explore that and it's I, I think it's very entertaining so um why don't we start with uh you you've had a long and storied life but why don't we start with uh and we can move backwards or forwards from this but when you first started writing as a profession for what was your first mm -hmm job as a journalist my first job as a journalist was uh in 1987 i was a street musician i came here as a musician a folk singer in new york city and i wound up being a really hardcore subway musician i was i was literally the a charter member of the music under new york program when not was only it? was i in it i was a charter member i started it and the music that's with the people with the little uh banners a, they yeah, have the banners you get a card you're allowed to perform in spots and the cops don't stop you 
So I was a charter member. That How were you a charter Mrs. member? How do, who approached you for that? I was approached at Grand Central Station one morning from somebody from the MTA, and they put a card in, in the MTA headquarters on Madison Avenue, right around the corner from, from Grand Central Station, and they said, call me, we have a gig for you, right? <laughs> this is old school, 19, like Grand Central, like this, before th the renovation, very... This was in the early 1980s. This right. is like the middle crack and, and AIDS and just murder was sky high and just was a different time. And I, I come from Chicago. I used to, when I first came here, I played in the streets because I, I played in the streets all around the world. And then uh, I got married. And it, I don't know, I saw a violin player there. I forgot the Grasic, I think. And I saw him one day. He was a charter member too, right? There was about five or six of us, right? And I'm like, whoa, I, I could do this. So I started playing the subway. It was a lot warmer. The money was better <laughs> playing warmer. the street, right? And, uh, you know, I was playing a couple years, being chased by the cops all over. And all of a sudden, they said they had this program. And they got a $75,000 grant from General Electric or whatever it was at the time. And uh, they had a CNN kickoff. I was on CNN. Really? Yeah, you could probably find it. I don't know when it was, right? And I was out <laughs> I of tune. I played clip. Panhandler, right? Anyway, so I, I was part of this program. And in 87, um, I, I, did, I, I came here as a musician, but I was always a songwriter. And I always kept journals. I was always a writer. And I always loved to write. And I always thought, if music doesn't pan out, I'll be a writer. You were writing songs. So you, you, were, you, you were like going to be the next folk Yeah, I came hero. here like, like a Bob Dylan. But, right. but I also kept a journal I also wanted to be in I, I was really a musician slash writer the mm -hmm. whole time I, I never I I had a duo art thing with me you know I couldn't draw but I could write and I always could write and I always loved to write so Didn't you get a degree in or you studied literature I what, you studied English yeah I studied journalism at Southern Illinois University and University of Oregon and then I dropped out okay and but, you traveled around the world. Or and I yeah. traveled around the country and the world, and I came to New York. So anyway, okay. I was married and with a couple kids, and there was still a typewriter here. And my wife said, you know, there's this new thing, computers. I'm like, ah, I'm not <laughs> going to get computers. And my dad got, my dad was always a techie. You uh -huh. know? He got like this 286 or something, I remember. Like right? the ones where the keys are like two inches thick that you have to push down. Right, and, yeah. and it had a real floppy big disk kind of thing, and it was CDOS. It, you operated out of the CDOS. It was before the Windows. That uh, was the operating Windows. system. Right, the CDOS. But we didn't even have that. We had a typewriter. And I was working at a spice factory. I was, As, Wait, what were you doing at a spice factory? I was packing spices for Dean and DeLuca. Okay. I was playing, uh, you know, I was playing music in, in the subway full time. I was doing anything I could because all of a sudden I had three kids. And I, and I was thinking, you know, let me write a thing called Diary of a Mad Subway Musician. <laughs> and it was like 13 pages, double-spaced, on a typewriter. And I tried to sell it to The Voice and to Rolling Stone, and they both turned it down, right? And then I saw the East Coast Rocker, which is uh, Music Weekly out of Jersey. Okay. Right? And when I saw it, I'm like, you know what? Let me shorten it to the street singer's beat. Because I always liked columns, and I grew up reading Mike Reichel in Chicago. And I said, let me shorten it, make it 400 words, right, 600 words, and I'll call it the Street Singer's Beat, and I'll write about my life in the subway, right? So my wife, who was a very smart woman, 
said, Steve, you're going to go in there, you're going to meet the publisher, and he's going to say, sounds like a good idea, but i got to see your writing. So before you go in there, write two sample columns and put it in your pocket. And when he says, sounds like a good idea, but I need to see some sample, you pull it out of your pocket and go, bam, and you show it to him. There <laughs> they are. Is that what happened? It happened almost exactly the way she said it. I, I think it was like scripted, and he said, oh, and he looked at it, and my first two columns were about me. I had a character I made up named Holler and Harry. Okay. So it was like an alter ego. So the columns. Uh, what was what did Holler and Harry like to do? What did he play? What was his he was a guitarist vibe? like me, okay. but he he was a bellower, and he was you know he, he's kind of like my alter ego. And I have is he still then, your alter ego? No, now it's a stumpy wagers. Stumpy wagers, right? <laughs> but back then it was Holler and Harry. So I had Holler. Are they related? Um. Yeah, they are related. Okay. They're related, right? They're this Ameri- there's an Americana theme here somehow. Like they've, I don't know, they're very two American characters. Like, Yeah, yeah, I suppose. And you know what? I To this day, I can't find those original two columns. But anyway, he looked at it and said, fine, I'll give you 25 bucks a week. What, I, did, East, was, sorry, hmm? what did East Coast Rocker normally write? About. Well, they did reviews of, I mean, there's out of Jersey. They had a guy from Skid Row was one of their ad reps at the time. Uh, bon Jovi. Skid Row, the, the band. The, the band. Right? Yeah, all, all the people that worked there were kind of musicians, a lot of them, or journalists. And Jim Rensenbrink owned it. And he, he, he was a, you know, I mean, it was, I'll always be loyal because he saw, you know, I sold my first piece to him and he really liked the column and others liked the column. And, if you think I'm the king of typos now, you should have seen it back then. <laughs> and and there was no spell checks, and everything was on the typewriter. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And but I made deadline every week, and that ran for seven years. And after the first two years, no, I'm sorry, after the first maybe five columns, I couldn't write about myself anymore. So I began to interview other subway musicians. Oh. So that's when I really began to become a journalist, and then. There was the issue of cops hassling them. There was the legalities of it. There was independent musicians versus music under New York musicians. So there was a host of issues that all of a sudden needed to be covered. Right. You know, and so it very quickly became social and political and right. sort of zeitgeisty in terms of what was going on in New York. And he had a supplement called Downtown that was that was a weekly and it competed with the New York press and it was during the time of the Tompkins Square riots and all this was going on in the 80s and we had all these radical writers and I, the, the very last thing about a classified was the street singers beat <laughs> but people really liked it and I got a you know I, Atlantic Records wrote me a thing of accommodation because I'd write about all these musicians that were getting no press did you ever so I have a couple of questions did you ever write about someone who then went on to do something that we would have heard about? A couple. I mean, it's weird. The two that I could think of right off the bat is one, um, Charlie Barnett. He was a famous street comic. And if you talk to Dave Chappelle or, or anybody, everybody knew Charlie. And I used to play at a club in the village, too. Besides being a street musician, I played in the clubs on Bleecker. And Charlie used to go there. and was the, the days of uh, AIDS and crack. And, you know, he kind of fell. A lot of people fell through pardon the pun the cracks back then right you know? and uh what kind of look what he had an act he would do on the street he was in he was the hottest street comic that's why you say if anybody was more popular anybody that knows the history of comedy or street art knows charlie barnett Incl- okay. including 
um, like Dave Chappelle. I mean, everybody was influenced by him. Where right? did he do his act? In Washington Square, almost exclusively in Washington Square or, you know, around the village. So instead of one of these like magician guys now who like, you know, gather an audience, he would just go up there and do bits. He would go like get people to, to listen to him. Charlie would climb a tree and go, <laughs> Charlie, Charlie. <laughs> and everybody be chanting. And he would have. 250 people. He was, I mean, of all the acts in Washington Square Park in the street back then, and there was a lot of them, Charlie was the star bar none. I, I mean, crowds and crowds and crowds. And then he, he finally got discovered. He was on a couple episodes of Miami Vice and DC Cab. Really? Yeah. And then and then he died. And How did, like, he OD'd? He, or? No, well, you didn't really OD with Just crack. I, it might have been crack or AIDS or something. You know, I don't know. But he... Did he live on the street like he was sleeping on the street? Well, he did, but once he got discovered, he he was on Def Comedy Jam. I mean, he, he was a really known guy, and uh, you know, he was a troubled soul. He was from Boston. Right? How did you? How was your interaction with him? Like, did you, did you get a good article? I oh mean, yeah, yeah. Oh, he, he gave me a poem, and it says by Charlie, and he wanted me to write it, and it was about crack and walking the streets. And to this day, it's a riveting poem. Wow. And then the second one is, um, I think that. It's not my phone, is it? Oh, yes, it's yes, your it phone. Is. Oh, boy. And I thought I'd turned it down. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm going to have to turn it off there. So anyway, the okay. other person, I mean, there was a couple, but I also remember uh, interviewing Sinead O'Connor. <laughs> and she, <laughs> well, was, she wasn't playing on the street, was she? Well, you know, it's weird because a lot of people, when, when I had the column, this is Steve's phone again. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> I thought, you know, that's a, um, this is what happens when Kelly leaves our podcast. Just right. Steve forgets how to turn off his phone. It's to be the new normal. Yeah. So anyway, I saw Sinead. There was a place in the, it called uh, Sinead, not Sinead or kind of Sinead or something, right? It was a Irish bar in the East Village, and she was appearing on Saturday Night Live, and. Uh, she was there hanging out. I guess she knew the people. And I had a lot of artists want to be calm because it was media, right? All right. of a sudden, I had some known artists that wanted me to write about them. So this was like a big circulation, like, I mean, local. Yeah, it was a big local circulation. You know. But I would always refuse. I'm like, have you been a musician? Are you a street musician? And she's like, I started in Dublin. I was a street musician, blah, 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 blah. So I'm like, fine. So so you were like, fine, I'll interview you, yeah. Sinead O'Connor, yeah. who was already famous. Right. So, yeah, so she's sitting there, you know, talking. I can't write big enough. And she had some kind of issue with the Catholic Church. So I gave her the pen and the, my yellow pad. That's what I used to write on the time. And uh, Steve, your meant? phone is still going off. I don't know why that is. Just put it in. Hold put on. It let me just power off. Excuse <laughs> me about that. Uh, so I think this is appropriate in an interview of Steve Witt. This, so. This is, Anyway, long story short, so she wrote this whole diatribe about the, the uh, Catholic Church, and I published it. But the very next day before it even came out, she went on Saturday Night Live and ripped up a, a picture of the That pope. was the day before she did yes. that? Yes, yes. That was like 1990 or something. Yes. Or, yeah. yeah, it could have been. That, yeah, because I had written the, I wrote the comp from 87 to 94. I wrote so you, for seven years. So you technically years. you broke the Sinead O'Connor Ripping hating up. the Pope yes. story. Yes, I did. Wow, and so you, she wrote she she wrote in your in your reporter's notebook right. this whole rant about against the church. And how, yes, did you publish it? 
Yeah, we published it the next week. But it was, she had ripped it like because the deadline, I think, was a Monday. And I'd written it on a Thursday or a Friday. And she was then setting it live on the Saturday. Right. So she kind of won up to you on that. Right. Yeah. So th- those were two. But then what happened <laughs> was. I like this idea. You're like, fine, I'll interview you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, she had to be a street musician. So then we went up. You have principles. Right. And if you don't like them, you have others. So then we moved upstate. We got a house, and I was driving a truck and uh, in the city. And I, it, it was the time also of, uh, I, I don't want to go into it too much, but it was a time of Coke, and, you know, it was just a very decadent time. And uh, we moved upstate in 91, and then I, I had a family band. The whole family band played. Oh, right. And, yes. And in this the is, subways. This could be its own podcast right. series. But long story short, the daily newspaper up there needed a stringer, a, a correspondent, to freelance. And it was the Times Herald Record, which is Dow Jones' 80,000 Cirque daily paper. What was the name of it? Uh, Times Herald Record. Okay. Out of Middletown, New York. But they covered Orange County, Ulster County, Sullivan County, right? Mm-hmm. And they needed a stringer in the newsroom. And I forgot the guy's name. He was from Kansas, the editor there. I went in there with a couple clips of Street Singers Beat. He looked at him, said, fine, you're hired. Cover of the school board meeting tonight. Handed me <laughs> a reporter's pad and a pen. And it was like the first time I was ever in a newsroom. And I mean, it was big. It was big. It was like just like you saw in, in movies and stuff. So this is like the, now the corporate media, Steve's in Middletown, New yeah. York, in the big city. Right. And they had computers, which I hadn't really learned. So I had to also learn how to run a computer. And they'd give you a desk. And you'd, you'd also, you know, a correspondent. So all of a sudden, I'm doing this. And, you know, I'm like, boy, this certainly beats driving a truck. And it certainly beats, I'm going from interviewing street musicians to the mayor of a local municipality. Right. You know? School board meetings. And I just, I, I, I remember the first thing they had me cover was a fire. And I never covered a fire. And they, ha- they would have a morgue in, uh, well, I, I mean, I did a couple of school boards. Right. And then I had a hard news story. I forgot what it was. It was a fire. And they put me out there because I'd be there. And, and they were paying me like a bit more. Although it was per story, and I had a fire, and I'd never written one. I ran to the morgue where they have the old newspapers, and I'm looking through other fire stories so I could, <laughs> like, just copy it, but, you know. And uh, within six months, they hired me as a staffer because I had a good nose for news. Who were the other journalists in this newsroom? Describe the sort of ambiance of the Times Hill record. The guy that I remember when I first started was Ken Lovett. Ken Flubbit? No, Kenneth Lovett. Oh, okay. Kenneth Lovett is a very well-respected journalist, and he's written for the Daily News and the Post, and he was the Albany bureau chief, and he just recently retired. He's, really? He's one of the most respected uh, government reporters out there, you know? And he was working with you at this time? Yeah, he was in the newsroom. Okay. Steve Jousey went on, uh, Chris Maley. There was, there was a number of people. I mean, it was a real legitimate news operation. A lot of people... Went through there. I guess the big story was Hunter Thompson started there. Really? Yes, he I did. I thought Hunter Thompson started in Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania. He might have started there, but he went through. He lived in Cuddybackville. He met his wife, and we lived in Port Jervis. He was right near there, and there was a story that he got fired from the Times Herald Record for kicking in the Coke machine. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was a legitimate news source, and a lot of people went on to the Wall Street Journal. The day, you know, people go on. You know, it's kind of a transient business, you know. So, so, so you'd moved your family up to Port Jervis, 
and you had had all these odd jobs, and then you got hired here, and you were doing this full time. Yeah, I started journalism late, and then I had a hassle with them because I was this leftist liberal, and I, I don't want to get into Wait, it. Well, but I got you were a left. You were the leftist liberal. Yeah, there? then I yes, because I you know I Whoa. I married, what happened? I married a black woman, and the, right. you know, and I had all these things, and it was like upstate New York. The politics was a bit different than Greenwich Village. Right. So. I got into a hassle with an editor uh, repeatedly. One thing I learned there kind of quick, because after two years, I was there two years, was pick your battles. I mean, that's like right. a fa- I learned a lot of little journalism trip tricks, and one was pick your battle. You, you know, like, you, you do have battles with editors, but you can't fight with them over every story. And when you do, you, it's like after a while. What were the issues that you were, like, clashing I on? I, I don't want to go into it it's a whole different story and okay I, I prefer not to uh, okay no i thought it might be something no you know no, germane I, like climate or i don't know no I, no politics I'm, um it it was a news story and okay. uh you know it it got settled in court eventually oh really yes it be, did. when you were one of the parties in, involved no i sued the paper oh wow you know so it was like a whole thing right right and then uh and i i got some money from it but right after I left, I, I was really depressed because I'd never been fired. I'm a hard worker. I was breaking stories. I had front page stories, but I was headstrong. I didn't understand. And then uh, right after I left, I, I sold a story in New York Magazine about street music. Then I sold an interview. Oh, no, then uh, the Pike County Dispatch was a weekly in Pennsylvania across the river. This guy, Chris Jones, who was the night editor at the Times Hill Record, had a fight with the same editor that I got in a fight where I got fired. And he left, and he had been there for like 11 years. And he knew, I never even knew the guy, but he knew my work. Right. And he knew the fight, you know, it gets around the newsroom. Sure. He had a problem with the same editor. And he became the editor-in-chief of this weekly, one of the oldest weeklies in Pennsylvania from the Civil War, the Pike County Dispatch. And he called me out of the middle of nowhere, and it was just across the river and down the road a bit from Port Jervis where I was living. So I got hired as a staffer there. I got offered the job nearly, you know, weeks after I lost my job. Wow, that's great. I mean, that's serendipitous. Now, I want to go back to, though, so you you mentioned that you're selling articles to other uh, news publications. I want, and and this is, this could be, you know, not necessarily specific to that time, but I want you to start describing the Steve Witt selling method because I think you have a very unique way of pitching things a lot of, and we can talk about that in different contexts, but, and, and you've been successful at that. You know, the thing that comes to mind is, you know, you pitching the idea to Marty Markowitz for the Brooklyn Nets or to the New Jersey Nets that come to Brooklyn, you get these ideas and then you sort of throw them at people. And, and a lot of the times it doesn't work, but a lot of times it works. So go into that a little bit. Like where did you start developing that? I, I, I don't know. I think that, um, My background, and sometimes I get sad about it and happy, but it is what it is. I I was a street kid. I just was a street kid, and uh, my family divorced when I was young, youngish. And the way uh, my parenting style, my parents' style of raising us was like what my wife used to say. They raised us like wild weeds, you know, like just <laughs> go out there, go on the street, you know, whatever, you know. 
You know, there was like not dinner, you know, or something. My mom would give us a dollar, say, go to Burger King or something, you know. Right. You come from school, she wasn't there, or my dad wasn't there, so we just kind of. So you survived on your wits, yes. shall we say. Yes, but it was, you know, it was a white suburban area. Right. Although we used to go ride the train to, to downtown Chicago a lot and hang out in the city. But even in Skokie, where I grew up, all my friends knew that, you know, and their parents knew because I would stay at their house and their parents would go, aren't you going home? Or, and I'd be going, no, I could, I could stay here, you know. Okay, I mean, this is... So, yeah, I don't want to get into prelude. psychology, but, you know. Well, I mean, what I'm gathering is, like, basically, you li- you lived by your ideas, right? Right. So you always had to have an idea. It wasn't like you had a routine. It was like, hey, let's do this, or hey, let's do that, or hey, and, and that was a sort of a survival mechanism for you, and that translates into... Pitch and story. Hey, what about a story <laughs> about this? Why don't we uh, do a family band in the, in the subway? Why don't we get the Brooklyn Nets, the Nets to come to Brooklyn? You know, like, this, I just, like... Okay, well, if I throw a bunch of stuff to the wall, like, you know, Correct. and very enthusiastic about it, like, then maybe it'll Some, work. Something sticks. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. You, you know, you can't get beaten down. Something sticks. And mostly pitches. I think a lot of people that, that pitch stories, the pitches are too long. The best pitches are a sentence or two. Elevator And then maybe pitch. a sentence or two about yourself. It's an elevator pitch, you know. But I think it's, I, I think it's an interesting lesson in terms of just, you know, it may not be conventional. It may not be you know something that you think anyone would go for but have at it go you know go for it what's the what's the downside risk right like you know i'm still that way i mean even the creation of king's county politics which you helped me create tom um i i like the idea of covering local government and politics from the ground up as opposed to the marble halls down Right. And even now, it's like a catchphrase after I wrote it. Oh, Witt says they're marble. We work for the marble halls. And I was thinking about it today. Yeah, I, I like that about Kings County politics. I, I think a lot of reporters, you know, they love the, the marble halls if they're covering government. You know, they right. love, you know, it's like it's cool and all these people and CNN. And obviously, most people, that sounds like, yeah, that's what you want to do. That's why you're going to journalism. And, and I'm kind of like, I, I don't know, I, you know, I mean, I wouldn't turn it down if it got offered me, but I just don't know whether that appeals to me. I, I like thinking about government, you know, like of the people, by the people, for the people, and right. the root of where government is. Well, I think people is the, is the key word. I mean, you literally started by interviewing lots of different people. I mean, there's there's this human aspect that you're really interested in. Could you talk a bit about more about the writers that you read growing up in Chicago? My idol was Mike Reichel, who was the uh, columnist for the Chicago um, Sun-Times and the Chicago Daily News. He actually, when I when I was growing up, he was with the Daily News, which was an afternoon paper, and then he moved to the Sun-Times, and then Murdoch bought the Sun-Times, and he famously said, uh, I, you know, I wouldn't, uh, no self-respecting fish would want to be wrapped in a Murdoch paper, you know, <laughs> and, and he was a guy, he just, I, I, when I went around the world, I wrote him a letter from India. I mean, he, everybody would love like Ernie Banks or the Cubs or the White Sox or Dick Butkus or Gail Sayers, and he was always my idol. What was it? I mean, so in New York, we have, you know, Jimmy Breslin and right. Pete he, Hamill. Like, was he that sort of like old school reporter who sort of told the truth from the, str- from the streets? He was better than both of them. Yeah? He was better. He was twice as good. I will put the best Mike Reichel columns against anybody. All right. Well, there's a New York City, Chicago challenge. Well, I know, and and people will say it, and I read Breslin and Hamill, but Mike Reichel, 
to me. And when I read him now, even his words, he grew up above a bar. Right. He was like Albanian. He knew uh, the Bellucci family. Really? Yeah, he came around the same time. The Bellucci's knew him. Heavy drinker, played 16-inch softball, which was a big game in Wait, Chicago. What's 16-inch softball? Well, here it's the softball is like 12-inch, right, or the, the smaller, or what, you know? You mean the ball? Yeah. A 16-inch diameter? Yes, and you played That's... without a mitt. And it was underhanded pitching, and it was this big softball. They had leagues in Chicago. And you hit it with a bat. You hit it with a bat, and the softball would actually get soft. That's what I call a softball. If wow. you hit it a lot, it kind. Of, matter of fact, you wanted it to get kind of soft. You know? I feel, I thought I've heard of every single crazy sport ever invented, but I've never heard of this. It, oh, it was the biggest, biggest, you know, like uh, beer belly game in Chicago for years, for years. And Mike Reichel was this. Mike Reichel, he said he would rather win the city championship in sixteen inch softball than a Pulitzer. <laughs> and and. It, it he was you know he just was uh you know he he drank a bit he wrote boss about Mayor Daly the first one yeah what were, what were like sort of the seminal you know co- topics that he covered or events or whatnot he well he covered city government uh-huh. he had uh you know I had Holler and Harry and my characters and I don't think Breslin or Hamill ever had characters yeah I don't think so and and Royko had Slats Grubnik. He, Slats Grubnik? Yeah, Slats Grubnik. He had a couple, but I remember Slats Grubnik was his most famous one. Well, that reminds me of Flan O'Brien. Do you know Flan O'Brien, the yes, Irish writer? Yeah, yeah. Well, he was, you know, he was a, he, for his real name is Brian O'Nolan, and he wrote for the Irish Times, and he had all these ridiculous characters, you know, pseudonyms um, that would all explain a certain element of Irish society. He was really into the sort of character driven. Um, Columns, you know. And Mike Reichel had that a lot, yeah. too. But, you know, he wrote a lot about Chicago government, too. Uh-huh. And the Mayor Daley, you know, the machine. Um, but he was, you know, just... So that was a huge influence, I, I you know. Anyone else? Not in journalism or well, writing? In writing, writing, you know, in terms of that informed the way that you write or what interests you in in describing the human condition. I, I think... Uh, Bob Dylan and the Beats, I think Jack Kerouac. You know, I, interestingly enough, I really consider Bob Dylan a beat writer. Huh. You know, he wasn't really a, 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 you know, he had his little Woody Guthrie folky kind of thing. But when you look at his work, he was much more of a beat kind of writer. You know, I think he was more influenced by, by Kerouac and Ginsburg than people want to let on. And I think Ginsburg, I really like Kerouac. And the older I get, I appreciate Ginsburg more and more. I think Ginsburg, you know, it's really hard if you're a poet to have certain even phrases remembered. Like, I mean, uh, the, whose woodsies are, I do not know. That's uh, Robert Frost, or I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> I, I'm the wrong person to talk to about but, poetry. You know, he, he was, you know, there's a couple of his poems that stick. And, of course, uh, Howl by, by Allen Ginsberg. You know? Right. Um, so... I, I would say those people. Wait, so, okay. Right at the moment. I mean, as I think, I could probably think of more. But You mean just like notorious poems where you could remember a line? Yeah, or, or something, yeah. Do not go gently into that night. Right, who said that? Dylan Thomas. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know. Um, something about William Carlos William and Peaches. Right. <laughs> I've seen the best, you know, minds of my generation, right? You know, uh, which was the Howl. I can't remember right. exactly. Out of the cradle, endlessly rocking, you know, Walt Whitman. Right. Um, 
Um, what about and you've mentioned this name before? I think it, I think it applies. Studs Terkel. I I always liked Studs Terkel. He I don't think he was as good as Reichel, but so far as interviewing people, right? And so far as the human condition, but they're totally different, right? I mean, well, I think they were friends and they were contemporaries, but huh. you know, Studs Terkel was a very important writer. You know, Chicago had a lot of very important writers. I feel very Americana kind of writers. You know? Right. I mean, I like Kurt Vonnegut. I think Kurt Vonnegut's underrated. I think his work lives. Underrated, really? Yeah, I think, you know... I mean, isn't he like sort of the standard writer that like a 14 or 15-year-old boy starts reading? And I, I mean... Yeah, maybe, like Catcher in the Rye or... Yeah, you know, Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, 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 like... Right. I mean, so basically, like, he's he's hit that level of, of, of being so... Um, part of the you know experience that people have now started to disrespect him but you think he lives up to it and and then the other thing that i have to give a shout out to of course is african-american writing and i you know like uh zora neale hurston langston hughes langston hughes was very much a, a writer of the people right and so was zora neale hurston and when i look at the harlem renaissance i'm like ralph allison invisible man uh, okay it was hard reading uh, Richard Wright, Invisible Man. I mean, uh, uh, Black, Native, Son, Native Son, right? And they were they were good, but they didn't get me the way Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston has, and okay. you know, uh, some other. Uh, I can't think of the guy's name. Claude McKay, I think. You know, African American poet. I think he was Caribbean American. So that was always highly influential too. Huh. All right. No, it's. A, I mean, and I think that shows in, in the way that you approach writing a story i mean from what i've seen is that you you can see a grand narrative in the smallest detail you know like where someone went to high school or you know what i, I don't know like uh where they live you know like there's everything has the potential for tapping into a much larger um story basically that's and interesting when you, when ask, you, say that. When you yeah. ask people questions I, 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 you know, you're very intent on finding out their biographical details as a way of interpreting how they act. It's hmm. interesting. You know, I'm, I'm really, um, lately, you know, I have my ups and downs as a human being, but as a journalist, I really feel like I, I have a, a voice and I have a strong voice and I'm really grateful for that. And I and I do feel that I I look at different angles than most other journalists. And I I it's nothing I really work to do. Right, and you, I mean, purpose. you've said to me as much that basically, you know, if you see if you personally see journalists all going one way, your in immediate instinct is to go the other way. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's I think that's fair. I mean, I think that's a strategy. I mean, a lot of people miss. Journalism, at the end of the day, is a herd mentality. Right. And people don't realize it. That, you know, with the jur journalism, if something happens, all the journalists go there. They, you know, you, you see it. You see it on CNN. Somebody's in Congress. They're walking down the hall, and they're surrounded by reporters with their mics out. Yeah. I mean, I remember as, as a photographer, like, yeah, once we, we went. Met, yeah. yeah, well, we met uh, at, at Courier Life. We haven't even gotten to Courier Life. We haven't even gotten to the young sport. Right. Well, they, there's a bunch of publications and freelance writing we, I've done. And I, think the, the, I think there needs to be the history of Steve Witt <laughs> part two, two yeah, yeah. maybe in, in, the, in the dog days of summer yeah. when everything's really slow. Um, 
but yeah like as you rose up in terms of from going from community journalism journalism to sort of city journalism i lost interest because you know you'd go to some stupid press event you know like bloomberg would open a mall and there'd be you know 15 photographers all taking the same exact picture of him cutting a ribbon well, for me the interesting things were go to going to these community events where you're the only news you know news member there and trying to find a story or trying to find a photograph to capture a very local happening that had a really nice and touching sentiment to it usually you know like a like a weird art fair or a street fair or a you know the Miss Staten Island beauty contest or you know some mom and pop store that's you know still go like stories about how that are still going strong. You ever see the, you know, the movie, The Paper, that said, uh, and I just saw it, this friend of mine just recently told me, there's a story in there where these journalists, are, they go to Europe, and they're, they're in Europe, and they like drinking, they're on an expense account, they're just really going out, and all of a sudden they get the bill at the end, and it's like $800. And they go around, well, who got what? We can't expense it, the editors are going to kill us, blah, blah, blah. And they're battling around this old decrepit man at the next table, calls over the waiter, and he draws on a napkin, and uh, the waiter comes over and says, it's taken care of. And he said, what do you mean? He said, that was Picasso. He just drew me and signed it. And, <laughs> and, and the, the moral of the story is that in, in, the, news, in the media business, you're, you're of the world, but you're not part of it. You know, like you, you, you deal with presidents and this and that, you know, but you're not, you're, you're not in it. You're of it. You're, you observe it. You're, right. You know. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, that, I mean, literally newspapers are called the observers or the, the mirror. Right. right. That's true. Good point. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, I think that's a good point to wrap up on. All right. That um, sounds good. This was an interesting uh, examination of the past of steve and well thank you for doing his, that, his present and i do think we need a round two of this uh later on uh maybe in august um don't want you know leave a little cliffhanger for <laughs> for people to wonder how steve ended up uh starting king's county politics um we'll be back next week um hopefully with a guest hopefully with a guest and right. uh, if this is all recorded correctly and uh that's it so um steve the twitter stuff do you well we are king's county polls uh right. on twitter facebook queen king's county politics also queen's county polls and i'm steven s-t-p-h-e-n underscore wit is my twitter handle all right that's our episode have a great week <laughs>